It's a sensitive, delicate deal, dragging brand new songs out of the sky. Trading ideas, accepting some, storing others in the maybe later bag, moving on and along with hardly a plan. During the Zep years, I never imagined a full-scale album project without the other guys, and even less the idea of new writing partners. But then, since 1981, I've enjoyed many amazing, exciting musicians in the sharing, in the writing, in production and engineering. Men and women who encouraged and enlightened, introducing me to crazy curves I could never have imagined. For this podcast, I'm going to be picking out some songs from here and there along the way, mixing constant shifts in sound and intention from across this long, old time. There's a story in all of them. I'm Robert Plant, and this is Digging Deep. Welcome to episode five of Digging Deep with Robert Plant. I'm Matt Everett, and this is the podcast where Robert Plant chooses a different song from his back catalogue and digs deep into the story behind the track, the inspiration, the lyrics, the stories of collaboration and creation that mark different stops in the musical roadmap of his life and career thus far. In this episode, we're looking at a song from an album collaboration that was released in 2007. It topped the critics' lists, it went platinum, it won a serious amount of Grammys, but this isn't just the story of some duets. This is the story of immersing yourself in the very lifeblood of American folk music, as Robert explains. This is Nothing from the Alison Krauss Robert Plant album Raising Sand from 2007. Hans Van Zandt, I, 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 how much did I know really about the underbelly of American music? I, I knew really only the stuff that had um, popped into my veins and continued to develop along the lines of the music from the Mississippi Delta that, and the migration of it into Chicago and how it turned into from Blind Lemon Jefferson to Larry Williams' Little Richard, um, you know, the drifters, all that stuff, the way that black music moved through through the the trials of the musicians, the the, the showmanship of people who came from such a dire, ridiculously inhuman place. Uh, and as a guy who's raised musically in the, from the early 60s onwards, I was really captured by that part of, of American music. Hence the story about going to New Orleans and stuff like that, you know, and the people that I've met along the line, along the way, up until the beginning of the 2000s. I'd seen the other world of, you know, folk, the, what you'd loosely call folk music, music that had has had a reflection on down through time whether it's Lead Belly's Gallows Pole or whether it came from an Elizabethan dance and was taken by the Pilgrim Fathers somewhere, whatever it was. But I didn't really know too much about the underbelly of folk and of, of European-esque American music. Didn't know anything about it, really. I knew uh, mostly the references that Dylan, Bob Dylan made to Woody Guthrie and 
I knew about the maybe the coffee house scene in New York. I knew about Sister Rosetta Tharp and Lead Belly and Sonny Terry Brown and McGee and stuff like that. And on a country angle, I only knew what we knew here, uh, which were country hits. Floyd Kramer, Glenn Campbell, <clears throat> if you want to call, you know, Glenn Campbell was a reflection of white America and songwriting from Jim Webb or whatever it might have been. I knew about Bob Lumen and Don Gibson's Oh Lonesome Me that Neil Young covered. And I knew all about that, but I didn't know about what was going on by the fireside round the hearth in country America. And um, I got an opportunity. A friend of mine had been really very powerful at VH1 in America on the TV networks. Um, Bill Flanagan, he was one of the main wheels there and, and still is a, a huge force in the American reportage of music, if you like. And he contacted uh, us and said, uh, we're doing this program called Crossroads where we put artists who are pretty much coming from totally different areas, you know, Kid Rock with Joan Baez or... Um, <laughs> no, no, that didn't happen, did no, it? No, no, Kid Rock... <laughs> Uh, Kid Rock with um, with um, Donald Trump, something like that, anyway. Uh, and they said, do you know about Alison Krauss? I said, well, yeah, she's got the voice of an angel and, you know, she sings very, very delicate, beautiful songs about pain, heartache and joy and plays fiddle. And she's got more Grammys than anybody else because there is the Alison Krauss category. Uh, anyway, they said, why don't you come and give it a, a whirl and see what you think. Um, she likes the 80s very much and she loved Def Leppard. I said, that's us then, bound to be signed, sealed and delivered here. So anyway, we, we decided that there was something good that could happen between us because our voices were so different. And yet, if I back off, and and take away the whole edge on the kind of on the vocal performance i can sing very delicately and and it were and it so what we did was we were we were invited to play at the cleveland ohio symphony in a night's tribute to leadbelly along with odetta clarence gatemouth brown and uh, harry belafonte stuff and and I thought well this these people are all singers who've left such a mark on all of us um, maybe they're bringing me in for just a bit of ballast or something so I said to uh, Alison if we're worth anything at all if we can do anything at all let's just try this thing out because we've only, we only do like five or six songs so Justin Adams from Space Shifters came with me and we teamed up with Los Lobos who I asked them if they would bring mostly just the traditional Mexican acoustic stuff instruments and we rehearsed in a, a little room in in Cleveland off the strip somewhere and we did this gig and it was hysterically funny I mean I, I had put my funeral suit on to match the occasion and Alison was there in a long dress and and we were doing things like uh, In the Pines, you know, 
Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. All that stuff. And uh, we were rehearsing away, and she said, I've got to ask you one thing, Robert. I said, well, what is that? She said, is there any chance you could sing the same thing twice so that I can find out how to sing a harmony on it? I said, oh. And a light came on, like a sort of torch shot across my... I went, oh, so to harmonize, everybody's got to know the part. Because I'd spent all the time up the sharp end, apart from that honey drippers, I get a thrill thing, without ever... And then I was singing the lead anyway. So with Alison, who's the queen of duets, I had to learn how to sing with somebody else who's a fantastic singer. So she started teaching me how to alternate harmonies and... How to sing. How to sing, yeah. And uh, I do the, with the Space Shifters, we do the most fantastic version of Happy Birthday to You now. We've got multi-part harmonies, Albanian quarter tones and stuff. But it all began in that little room in, out there in Cleveland. The gig was a success. We laughed a lot, and we continue to do so. I saw her in recently in uh, in Dublin the night before we finished our entire tour, and I went to see her singing with the Cox family, this brother and sister from uh, Louisiana, and stunning singing. Anyway, so that was it. So they, we said, well, why don't we see what we can do, and let's. Um, Somebody said T-Bone Burnett, and I thought, surely he's the drummer who was with the legendary Stardust Cowboy in 1959. She was, yeah, uh, on a session called Paralyzed, I think it was. Anyway, so T-Bone said, okay, let's see what we can do too. I'll get you a bunch of songs, and uh, I'll send them out. Now we have internet. You can listen to them, you know, and see what you think. And I said, okay, well, I'll take some 45s off my jukebox and um, I'll bring these along too. So between between us, we got together about 14 tracks and it became Raising Sand. And, uh, and it was the most remarkable experience because it was another fantastic challenge for me. I mean, I'm not used to sort of just jumping it. Well, I hadn't at that time. I would never really imagine walking into a sound emporium in Nashville, and with all these amazing players, including Mike Seeger, Pete Seeger's brother. Who I mean, this is like folk and country royalty to sing songs the likes of which I'd never really even imagined at the beginning of this. Talking about this song, Tans Van Zandt was a name, but I never realised how intense and spectacular his work was and, and this is a, 12 years ago so suddenly I had this you know the gates of heaven opened again and I was like there I was listening to Lefty Frizzell listening to all this stuff and um, and the players in the room were like out of sight they, and they, they found me to be something that they hadn't been used to dealing with. I was going to ask you about this. How did it work the other way? Yeah, it was amazing, really, because, you know, 
I think the most important thing when you're dealing with total strangers in a recording studio where it's all about performance and feeling good, you've got to be okay about what you're doing. With strangers, you've got to make it feel okay. So, well, Alison was saying, I want to talk to you, come outside. So we go outside, she said, how do you think it's going? I said, it's going splendidly. She said, don't you think he's crazy? I said, who? All of them, she said. I said, look, let's just do four days, but then I'm gonna go from Nashville to Clarksdale, Mississippi. I'll go down, and there's a highway that runs down called the Natchez Trace, and I'll follow that all the way down to Tupelo, Mississippi, where Elvis was born, cut across to Clarksdale to see some friends, and we'll see how it goes. Let, let it be. Then there's no real, we ain't beholden to anybody. We just pay our way and just go if it doesn't work. But it worked to such a degree that probably within eight days, apart from two or three tracks, the album was done. Eight days? We didn't do Gone, Gone, Gone. We did that in L.A. And uh, I think a couple of other tracks that came along as afterthoughts. But it was, by and large, just like falling off a log. But... I found myself having to translate, proscribe songs by people who are like, you know, it's like, what do I do with a Tans Van Zandt song? Um, and the Gene Clark song on that album called Polly, that was the very first track. I, The very first track of the session was Polly. And I didn't know what I was going to sound like in that dog box with the microphone. So I said, whack a load of compression on this thing. And I'm going to just whisper right into the mic and see where it takes us. And um, so when it came to th this track, Nothing, I knew the story of Tans Van Sand. I knew the, um, the remarkable canon of his work. Canon ain't the right word. That's far too fancy. I mean, he just... <laughs> just how remarkable um, his work and his, if you look at his songs, how far he was into his condition and still able to create amazing music. I was reading about this song and the interpretations are either that it's, it's, it's a song about abuse, it's a song about mm. being trapped, or, but he once said in an interview, Oh, that he'd, he'd read The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. And he was like, actually, there's, there's a whole biblical yeah. Yeah. Uh, frame, framing that you yeah. can put on the song as well. And if you look at the lyrics, you can. You can see yeah. both things. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. It's, uh, yeah, it's a long, long way away from pop music, isn't it? Funny enough, really, um, at the end of uh, the Raising Sand period, Buddy Miller and I stuck together. Buddy had been playing guitar on tour, just a remarkable player and a, a great force. And I said, let's keep this going. Let's do some more stuff. And um, so we did a, an album called Band of Joy, which we'll come to at some point further down the road once we've all had a sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we then we went back to towns again, and we I think the very last thing he he put on tape was a song called Harm's Swift Way," 
and in our Band of Joy album, which followed Raising Sand, we took that song and we turned it upside down into a kind of country piece with great... Um, we tried to lighten it a little bit, you know, with in homage to him. I'm sure he wouldn't have needed any homage. He had his own life, for better or worse, you know. Uh, but, you know, these are all... To visit these kind of songs, which come from an... Bearing in mind that I, I really didn't really know too much about half of these people. And when I started looking into it, I realized that so much of it was so deep. And as much as we're all showmen and we, all, we can all get up and sing songs, I mean, when people write songs that have got this kind of intensity, you know, um, an abstraction, they leave you absolutely flawed because you do spend most of the rest of your life, if ever you think about this song, trying to figure out, well... Was he referring to, you know, it's great. I mean, the, amb the, the sort of whole abstraction of song is crucial, I think. The ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really quite something to be... To, and, and then sometimes, now and again, down the line, somebody who is a writer of a particular piece draws the blinds back a little bit and you go, oh. But of course, they could be fooling themselves. They're probably fooling just for the sake of it. I've written songs, I don't know what they're about myself. Yeah, so from from there on, for about 18 months, we traveled everywhere. This little kind of racing sand phenomenon. And by the time I stuck around at the end and Buddy and I agreed to co-produce this Band of Joy collection, which is, again, another collection of covers. I mean, Raising Sand, there's no original songs on there. And, and in the Band of Joy, one piece. And I think, with the speed at which people were working in Nashville, when we were recording, my, my take on things is, if we're going to do somebody else's song, well, I think maybe it's a good idea if the musicians listen to the original version. No such thing. Really? Nobody wanted to hear anything. They just wanted to know how it was going to be sung. That's very cool. Yeah. And if, if, it was in, if the song was in the key of E, that would be the one chord. And if, so if you go to A, it's the four chord, and B, it's the five chord. So in the studio, they're playing, and, and guys are just lifting a finger up, four fingers, or five. And you know, as they're playing along, they're just moving the chords through. They're, you know, it's that Nashville way of, you know, reading the session, which I thought was fantastic, because they could do, anything could happen. Just a sort of quirk or a little figure, especially with the Band of Joy when we were doing things like um, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down and um, using a fretless banjo and stuff like that. There was all sorts of little kind of counter melodies coming out and stuff and nobody had heard the original song. They didn't need to because they were just playing. You know, I think that's, that's spectacular. It's really, really a beautiful way of... Uh, I mean, you do it, obviously, when you're in a studio working out a piece and it's... A, in, say, 
the British singer-songwriter thing. You, you kind of know where you are, but it, quite often it doesn't live the same life as these guys make it live out there, you know. Was there, is there, I mean, a temptation to sort of go back and try and do another record in the same way with the same personnel with Alison, or do you think it stands on its beauty as being just that piece? Well, in truth, that night before the last gig, <laughs> when I saw Alison, she said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I just happen to have about 25 songs like those songs that I've been collecting. But you take too long. I mean, we got to hit this so hard if we were able to do something like that. And likewise, with the kind of the honey dripper element of old, beautiful music, I mean, but not coming from the same zone, a different zone. You know, it's a different, com if you like, absolutely a different complexion in every respect. So, yeah, but I like, so I like the idea of invention from absolutely nothing. You walk in make a cup of coffee and sit down and go what are you thinking about i hear a very very big snare drum uh, with a decay that turns into laughter at the end of the decay of the reverb and then it becomes a, a laugh we've used that before actually on an album way back um so yes the temptation is great because it allows me to get the Rand mcnally map out again you know and yeah, the blue highway. But um, who knows? That was Digging Deep with Robert Plant, episode five. We hope you're enjoying listening to these shows as we're loving making them. Uh, be sure to hit subscribe, that way you won't miss the next episode with Robert tackling another song. And of course, that's the best way you can go back and listen to previous Digging Deep shows. Until the next show, I've been Matt Everett. Thank you very much for listening. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production.